Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the gathering or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Last week we launched our new season, or our new series, rather, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark is an interesting Gospel, because it's the first that was written. And it's also the the one that is the the shortest in brevity, I guess. It's, it's It's very brief in the way that Mark talks. He speaks in a rather staccato kind of tone. He gets to the facts. He gets them he hits them hard. He doesn't fill them in quite so much as the other Gospels. Uh, but he, he talks about the most important thing. And the, and the most important thing to Mark is that we know and that he communicates that Jesus is the Son of God. I mentioned last week who the audience is most likely. And that is most likely Roman Christians around the time of the persecution beginning under Emperor Nero Mark, we believe, was with Peter or very likely um, soon after, or at the very least, soon after Peter's death, his own persecution and martyrdom. Paul may or may not have been alive at this time, but we know that this is when when Mark was writing the gospel because of the fact that there were people who were under the gun. There were Christians who were under the gun, and what they needed to know is that Jesus was the Son of God and Jesus was in control. Jesus is the one that you look to. And so Mark was getting this message out. He, he, there is an urgency about it. It's either the style or it is the, uh, the circumstances where Mark is saying things like immediately this happened and as soon as and those sorts of things, those sorts of phrases that tell you there is a sense of urgency. This happened and then immediately this happened. And then all, uh, you know, as soon as that, then they were immediately here. This is the kind of urgency we get as we look at this book. And last week, we looked at the entrance of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is in the wilderness, uh, and he is declaring a a, a call for baptism, a baptism of repentance. And so all the people from the region were coming to be baptized in the wilderness with John. And John says, look, this, this is a baptism of water. There's one coming who is greater than I am. He, I am not worthy to even strap his sandals. I baptize with water, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. And as he closes that time, it is a transition, a very quick transition from the last words of he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit into verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now, if you put these two things together, you've got something interesting going on. You've got Jesus, who is perfect, coming into the wilderness, John declaring a baptism for repentance, and now Jesus is going to be baptized. And we don't have any of the, de- the details that the other gospel give us. We don't get the argument between Jesus and John as to, wait a second, John's saying, hey, I, I don't baptize you, you baptize me. I, I'm going under, you're not going under, under my hands. And, and Jesus says, look, this is what we need to do for the sake of righteousness now. This is what is proper. So we're going to do that. We don't get that. 
Because Mark is getting to the point, he's getting to the heart of this baptism, and what it is, is an inauguration. <clears throat> Much like the way that we inaugurate presidents. A president is elected, they go through an, an inauguration ceremony where they are administered an oath that kind of says, here's what your job is, and here's your intent to do it. And so they undergo that inauguration. Well, in Jesus' case, it was an inauguration. It was the start of something, whereas that's the start of their presidency. This is the start of his earthly ministry. It was an important start. It was an important thing that Jesus was doing. It was so important <clears throat> that when the disciples went to replace uh, uh, Judas, they said the requirement is we need someone who has followed him from the time of his baptism until now. It was that starting point that was hard and fast, and people knew that was what was being inaugurated. It was important. That was his earthly ministry. And so what is it that happened? If Jesus was not coming to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins, what was he doing? And I see two main things that was going on. First of all was an identification. It was an identification with sinners. We need to understand what Jesus was doing when he went down into that water and he was being baptized. See, John's baptism as a call to repentance was an indictment. It was an indictment against the people. Throughout the Old Testament, we read where God had given a law and the people were not able to keep it. They drifted. They fell away. And so this is similar in the sense that John is calling the people back to the law of God, back to who God is because there had been a breach of the covenant. And so this was a baptism of judgment. This was an admission to them that they had been a lawbreaker. And so it was in the sense that uh, when Nehemiah had come back to build the wall around Jerusalem and Ezra and the, the law, copy of the law had been found and Ezra read it publicly and the people heard it they were like, we are sinners. And there was this massive uh, a revival as the people were broken and they were sorrowful. And this is in that vein where, uh, where John is calling them back and saying, this is where you have failed. You need to repent and come back to God. But the problem is water can't take away sins. Water can't wash away sins. It can be an acknowledgement of being a sinner. It can be an acknowledgement of the fact that, yes, we are lawbreakers, but yet there's still not, there's not the bridge that has been established that brings them back into right relationship with God. They were still in their sins. And so in essence, what happens is Jesus, the, the Holy One, the Perfect One, the One who needed not be baptized for His own sins, He steps in what is essentially polluted water with people having been baptized to uh, recognize the fact that they were sinners Jesus stepped into sinful water if you will as the one who needed not be uh, baptized he did this in order to become the lawbreaker for us Jesus is identifying with sinners he is doing what we could not do in order to acquire what we could not acquire. See, that was our water. That was our baptismal water. We can look in judgment on those who were coming in repentance and per perhaps in ignorance. But we were all sinners, and we were all hopeless. 
We're all lawbreakers. We're all fallen and sinful and broken, and we need a Savior. And Jesus steps in to identify with the sinner and to say, I am come that they not deal with the, the justification, the wrath uh, of a holy God. So there was this identification with sinners. He didn't come to, to identify with his own sins, but with our sins. And then there was a consecration for the task. Again, in, the, in, the, uh, in a general inauguration, it is a setting aside. It is a setting apart. And in, in baptism, this was a consecration for the task and the, the office that he would attain to, which was the Messiah, the Deliverer. If you look in Numbers chapter 8, when a, when a new priest in the Jewish tradition would uh, become a priest, they would go through essentially a baptism, which was a consecration. That meant that they were selected, they were elected and chosen and set aside, set apart for the work of God. And Jesus is ceremonially being set apart for God's purpose of redemption. This was the fulfillment of time. This was the time that had been uh, foreshadowed it is the one had, that had been foretold and now it was here Jesus coming on the scene breaking into time and space in order to deliver a people and to make a people for God so we've got Jesus stepping into baptism he's baptized he's taken under the water baptism means baptizo to submerge Jesus is is submerged into this water and then verse 10 tells us something pretty amazing happens. I, 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 the thing about this too is I think sometimes it's not amazing to us anymore. If you've been in the church and you've read or you've, you've sat in sermons for a long time, things that are amazing don't sound all that amazing because we're not there to see it. And so we read about it and we hear the heavens were torn open. Can you imagine if you actually saw the heavens torn open this was a massive event but that's what it says it says that the heavens were torn open and the word the Hebrew word here for to tear it, it signifies a cataclysmic demonstration of God's power it is used in other parts of the Old Testament uh, for instance when the uh, the Red Sea was divided and Moses split the rock for water in relation to God's command and the splitting of Mount of Olives on the day of the Lord. And then Isaiah used this as a prophecy of the coming of God. If you look in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations will tremble in your presence. On that day, the heavens were torn open and God stepped in uh, in that moment. Mark uses this only one other time in his gospel and that is at the time of Jesus' death. When Jesus dies, Mark says, Jesus breathed his last and when that happened, the curtain of the temple was torn. It was torn apart, ripped open from the top to the bottom. And it was at that moment that the centurion, standing at the foot of Jesus, looked up, seeing how he breathed his last, and said, surely this is the Son of God. 
This is the Son of God. So both one time at the beginning and then one time at the end of his ministry, there were supernatural signs that Jesus is the Son of God with the heavens tearing open and the tearing of the temple. And then it says that the Spirit descends. The Spirit descends. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now this is more the, than kind of the, the idea of descending onto him. And, and Mark here uses a simile. He's not saying that there was a dove necessarily. Maybe there was, but he's saying it was like a dove. The Spirit was descending into him. This was an anointing of Jesus by the Spirit of God. And it was for the purpose of him fulfilling his ministry, being able to fulfill his ministry, to enable him, to strengthen him, and to fulfill his office of mediator. This enabling would happen as Jesus remained faithfully obedient to the Spirit's leading. So we have to understand that. Jesus came and humbled himself. The Spirit of God anoints him and enables him, leads him, guides him, directs him. He is fully and completely obedient to the Spirit of God that is within him. He will battle Satan. He's going to overcome temptations. He's going to battle through Gethsemane, and he's going to stay on the cross out of pure obedience to God. This is the same Spirit that came not too long after that on the day of Pentecost. And, and he came not like a dove descending, but at tongues of fire. You get a sense of the power of the Spirit of God. You get a sense of the consuming nature of the Spirit of God. And it is important that we also understand that he comes to counsel and encourage and convict and empower and that we are subject to the Spirit of God, having been filled with Him at the trusting and acceptance of Jesus as the Lord. And, and so the, the, the Spirit descends, and then you get God speaking. God speaks. Look at this, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, What's significant about this, God speaking? We've read throughout the Old Testament where God spoke. He spoke through prophets. He spoke to uh, Abraham. He spoke to Moses. He has spoken so often in the Old Testament. But what is significant here is, is God has not spoken in over 400 years. I mentioned last week that God went silent through those, that intertestamental period up until John the Baptist. And now God's voice is heard he is speaking. And what does he say? He says, you are my beloved son. That's important. And you see on the notes, that's emphasized. You are my beloved son. The present tense is used there. And it is there in order to communicate. This is an eternal uh, and essential relationship. You are. It's a state of being. You are my son. It, it does not say you have become my son. Now I know Psalm 2 references that. We see the perfect here in God's call of Jesus, his identification of Jesus. You are my beloved son. You have not become my beloved son. Why, why am I making such a big deal out of this? 
Because much to my surprise and my chagrin, not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes, not even all Christians believe that Jesus is eternally the Son of God, that Jesus is an eternal, coexistent part of the Trinity. Just this last week, I read an article in, um, it, was out of, it was a Lifeway study in conjunction with Ligonier, and it was in the magazine Facts and Trends. And it startlingly said that 65% of evangelical Christians, that would be us, do not believe that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, but that he was the first and greatest of God's created beings. Did, did you get that? 65% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay, so out of the group that we have here, let's just divide, say, right about here. All of you over here would believe that Jesus was the first and, create, and greatest created being. And this group over here would believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That's startling to me. Statistically speaking, there would be people in this very room who believe that, who fail to understand that Jesus is God, and yet John 1 makes it very, very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and without Him not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then later he says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So the same Word that was in the beginning with God and created, co-created with the Father was Jesus, the Word who became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. So I want to put that to bed, because that's important. If you don't get Jesus, you don't get salvation. If you don't get Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the perfect one, not a created being like the Archangel Michael or any of the other created beings in heaven, then you miss it. So you need to nail that down. Who is Jesus? And this is what Mark is trying to do, man. He's trying to nail down who is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Which is another way of saying Jesus is God in the flesh. Do you believe this? Do you get it? That's a basic, man. That, that is a, a basic thing. And so you can understand maybe where I'm so startled at this. That evangelical Christians, those who claim to have been saved by Jesus, don't believe he's the Son of God. That's a problem. That's a problem we need to deal with. He is the uncreated one. So, beyond that fact, God speaking and saying, you are my beloved son, was important for Jesus in his ministry. It's as if God is saying to him, the Father is saying to the Son, hey, I love you. You are my son. I love you. I want you to know this. Why is that important? Maybe I can explain it in terms of fathers and sons. Uh, as a father of two boys, man, I, I need my boys to know that I love them. I need them to know that they are unconditionally loved even when things go badly and understanding that there may be times in their life when I can't be there. I'm not speaking, I love you, but I want them to know no matter what you go through, no matter what you suffer, what you struggle with, your dad loves you. And he's not going anywhere. 
He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to turn his back on you. But I love you. Now, you know that something's a little different in this relationship with God the Father and God the Son. Because we know on the cross, the Father did turn his back because Jesus was bearing the weight of sin. And so is it important that Jesus know in that moment when the Father is not speaking to him that he is loved? Absolutely. Man, when Jesus is wrestling through all of the temptations, he needs to know that he's loved. Because Jesus is God, but Jesus is also in the flesh. And we know that he's tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That would include going, hey, does he love me? Does the Father really love me? If, If he's tempted in all ways, there are times when I think that. I'm just like, okay, do do you really love me, God? And I have to go back to what I know is true. I have to go back to the gospel. I have to go back to what the word tells me. And even on the cross where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment of darkness, in that moment of silence, there is the declaration that Jesus does, in fact, know that the Father loves him. Even when God has to go silent in order for the mission to be absolutely complete because Jesus is quoting the first part of Psalm 22 and if you read through Psalm 22 beginning with my God my God why have you forsaken me a couple of things are happening there number one Jesus is saying those words which most people having learned the Old Testament having learned the Psalms having sung and and repeated and quoted most of them probably started running through Psalm 22 in their head And if they did, they would hear what Jesus was really saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what has to happen, but yet, but yet you have not abandoned me. I will praise you. I will be delivered. These are the themes that are running through Psalm 22. It was not a declaration of hopelessness. It was a declaration of victory. Even in that moment, if you understand Psalm 22, you understand that Jesus went through the whole gamut. And I believe on that moment, Jesus knew the Father loved him. Yes, you've forsaken me. You've had to. I have become the sin of men. I have stepped into the water. I have taken on what they deserve. And because they deserve your wrath, with me stepping into that water, I am going to take on your wrath. I am going to bear the full weight of it. I'm going to suffer the loss through it. And I'm going to deal with the separation because of it. But I will not be utterly abandoned. I will not be forgotten. I will not be left in the grave. There is victory. And Jesus knew the love of the Father And perhaps, I don't know, maybe he hearkens back to that day. You're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. Or he goes to the day of transfiguration and he remembers, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is important that we also understand the love of God, that we understand what is uh, what is being said to Jesus as we understand the overall pattern of God's love, the nature of God's love. He said, with you I am well pleased. And this expression of approval, that I'm well pleased with you, we tie this up with the eternal love communicated 
to Jesus, it demonstrates the nature of God. That God is love. Yes, he's a judge, he's a God of wrath and judgment, but he is a God of love, and it is displayed in no greater way than the Father's willingness to sacrifice his Son to deliver sinners from the rebellion against himself. That he would be willing to do that. This messianic mission is the only way we can ever hope to hear, well done, I'm pleased with you. But in Jesus, because of his willingness to take on the wrath of God, to bear the shame and the pain on the cross and the death among sinners and for sinners, then because of his righteousness, his perfect righteousness being imputed to us or credited to our account as we believe and trust in him, then we can stand before the Father and rather than hearing and bearing his wrath, we can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your eternal rest. And you're not going to earn that. The only thing that you and I earn is eternal wrath, is the judgment of God. But the mercy of God, who doesn't give us what we deserve, which is the punishment, and the, and the grace of God, where he gives us righteousness, which is what we don't deserve, through Jesus, that is his loving approval of his son and the work completed and then uh, expressed towards his adopted children. I want you to note that in this moment, this whole picture of the redemption of man includes the entire trinity all at one time. You have the Father present speaking. You have the Spirit descending and filling up Jesus, and you have Jesus entering into the redemption process of man, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three present at one time, all working out the Godhead's plan of redemption. Man, this is all to God's glory, but my goodness, don't, do you feel loved in this? Do you understand the love and the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the compassion of God, who would say, you deserve eternal punishment? but my love and my grace reaches out to you because of the, the work that my son did on the cross. And, and not only that, but in order that you can have abundant life now, the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells in you to guide you, to counsel you, to convict you, to keep you away from the sin that will destroy you. There's no greater love than that. Have you found that? Have you experienced that? Do you know the love of Jesus in your life? Do you know the love of the Godhead towards you in your life? So as we turn back to the passage, there's an unexpected turn here. So again, the Spirit has descended. The inauguration of Jesus has happened in the baptismal waters. The Father has spoken. Spirit descended. Uh, in most presidential inaugurations, what you would expect at that time is for everybody to go to inaugurational balls, right? You go to a party. You go, you celebrate what has happened. You know, we won the victory, and now we've gone through the inauguration. Now it's, we're getting here, we're, we're ready to govern, but before we do that, we're going to party. But we don't get that with Jesus. If you look at what happened here again, verse 12, immediately, there's that word again. Mark is like, we don't have time to mess around here. This is a, a serious mission, and he says, immediately 
the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. There's some interesting parts to that. Uh, but immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, you, you get this strange picture where the Spirit descends like a dove and then it's almost like he turns into a lion, right? It's like he drives him into the wilderness. There's this forcefulness. There's this no-nonsense moment where the Spirit of God drives the Son into the wilderness. He forces him into the wilderness. Of course, Jesus is moving in obedience to the Spirit, but you get the power of the Spirit to carry out this mission. It's going to be accomplished. The battle is immediate. And he says something interesting because it gives us a picture of what he's going into because it's an interesting saying, he's with the wild animals. Now, there have been several... Uh, thoughts on what that means. He's with the wild animals. One, uh, one that's interesting has been the, the fact, and I think part of this can certainly be applied, where he went into the wilderness, whereas the first Adam went into the Garden of Eden and was driven out of Eden into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness in order to reverse the curse, if you will. I like some of that, but I think more than anything, I think the very basic message of what Mark is saying is he was not going into a Garden of Eden. That he was going off into the wilderness, and it was a wild place, and there were wild animals, but first and foremost, he had to deal with, he had to confront the enemy. He was going in on the enemy's territory, and he was going to level an attack. To see, this was not something that Satan had planned. Satan didn't plan this. Satan wasn't sitting back going, well, all right, I got God to do what I want him to do. Now here he comes. I'm going to take him down. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over Satan. If I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you don't think so, go back to Job. The whole story of Job comes around the premise that God is sovereign. Satan had to come before God to get approval to do anything he wanted to. And so God gave him permission. So this is all of God. This is an attack against the enemy. This is not the enemy attacking God. God has set this in motion so that Jesus would have to go out and in the obedience and the power of the Spirit of God, he would attack. He would go on the offensive even as he was being tempted by the enemy. But it was a wild and unforgiving place if this was going to be victorious. And, and, and the thing about Mark 2, he didn't say that we don't get the story of it ending, the temptation that Jesus won this victory and it was over. Mark has sort of this ongoing picture of temptation that Jesus was constantly having to be obedient throughout his... Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane again. Okay, was there a temptation to, to, to forsake the mission? Jesus was down on his knees uh, sweating drops of tears and saying, Lord, take this cup from me. Can you say at that moment Jesus was not tempted to push the cup away? And yet in that moment he said, not my will but yours be accomplished. Jesus was going to be obedient to the Spirit. He was going to be faithful to the mission every step of the way. And it started right there in the wilderness where he was being tempted by uh, the adversary and he had to be, to be obedient. He had to depend on the Spirit. The success of the entire mission depended on this. And obedience is always the key. 
Obedience to God is always the key to success in our Christian walk, in the walk with Jesus, in our walk with the Father. Obedience is not optional for a believer any more than it was for Jesus, and the Spirit of God does not provide suggestions. The Spirit of God commands. For an unbeliever, he woos, he draws, he, he, he cajoles, he, he, he draws you in. For the believer, he commands, he directs, he convicts. There's this power. You are mine. You are sealed. And you will obey me so that you can live the life that I have provided for you. Through obedience to the Spirit, Jesus has access to the power of the Spirit to succeed. And that is the same power that you and I have. It is the same Spirit of God that you and I have, ac have access to. And temptation is a powerful thing. If you recall from the other Gospels, the temptations that were leveled against Jesus hit him right where he was. Hunger, power. I mean, he was the Son of God. Was there not tempta uh, temptation to demonstrate that, to prove it? He hadn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry, it says. So was there not temptation to eat? These are temptations that are real, and we experience temptations that are real, don't we? Sometimes we stand strong, sometimes we fall, but if we are going to stand strong, it is going to be through obedience and reliance upon the Holy Spirit so that we can overcome. I love the way this ends here where he says, and the angels were serving him. The angels were serving him. You might be thinking, man, I kind of like that. I like the idea of angels serving me. And yet we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? The angels were there to serve Jesus, to watch over, to do the bidding of the Father. And yet we are told that we as sons and daughters of the most holy God through adoption, we have access to the power of the Spirit and the ministering angels that are sent and because Jesus overcame the temptation of the enemy throughout his ministry, he's also the one that we turn to. So we have the Father, we have the Spirit, we have the Son, all in one, who are loving us and caring for us, have, has done everything for salvation, and now Jesus is the one that we turn to. If you're at Hebrews 1, turn a couple of pages over to Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 14 through 16. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. How do you hold fast to your confession? It is through reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. It is by submitting fully and completely to the Spirit of God. He says in 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. This is the one who identifies with us. This is the one who stepped into the water of baptism to take on that role. And so the conclusion is 16. Therefore, in light of this, because of that fact, because Jesus understands you, he gets you, he feels you, he's been there, yet without sin, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to read that one more time. That's so very important. 
And here's why it's important. Quite often, we can talk about the provision that we have through Christ. We can talk about the fact that we have a high priest who, uh, who understands the things that we're going to. And we can say, I can stand up here and say, run to Jesus, run to Jesus, run to Jesus. Turn to him. When you're feeling temptation, turn to Jesus. When you're, when you're facing a trial of any kind, turn to Jesus, run to Jesus. But quite often, we don't actually do it. And so I want to read this again for emphasis. Because of the fact that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, hold fast to your confession. Which confession is that? That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is your Savior. That Jesus is your Lord. Hold fast to your confession of faith in Jesus as, as Mark said, the Son of God. Let us hold fast, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. If you think about other religions, and you think about their gods, you've got, you've got gods, that, deities that are far removed from the people. They do everything they can to try to appease this God. But our God, the living God, has appeased the judgment of the Father so that He can show us grace and mercy. And so he says, we have a, a God, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. Approach the throne of grace. Jesus came so that you could approach the throne of grace. Jesus came so that you could walk into the very throne room of your Father. You don't have to knock. The temple, ha the temple curtain has been torn between the Holy and the Holy of Holies so that you can walk into the presence of God. This morning I was preparing in my office, getting last thoughts, and the door opens. I didn't have to look. I knew who it was. Andrew had come in, my youngest son. Andrew walked in the door. Without looking, I said, what's going on, buddy? Why? Because everybody else knocks. Everybody else knocks. So, Jacob, you don't knock. <laughs> so my sons don't knock. This is the kind of God we have because this is the Father that we have. In Christ, God, the Father, says, come in. Come to me. Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come boldly before the throne of God so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We humans, when we have a time of need, that's the time that we try to work it out the most. That's the time where we try to take it on ourselves. I can figure this out. I can work this out. I've got this. And then when we have exhausted every other option, God help me. But the writer of Hebrews says, look, you've got, you've got a God who sympathizes with you where you are. You've got a, a high priest who has passed through the waters. You have a high priest who has overcome. He understands. Come to him first. And come boldly. I mean, that's the, that's the opening up the doors and coming into your father's palace and saying, God, I need help. I need mercy and I need grace. 
I need mercy because I've, I've done some stupid things. I have fallen. I've been temp- tempted and I've fallen. I need mercy. I need your mercy. Would you forgive me? Would you, would you make me new and receive grace? You get what you don't deserve. You get a father. You get a dad. He says, look, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. The price has been paid. I'm not angry. The wrath has been satisfied. Come on in. This is the God of Mark. This is who God is trying, I mean, Mark is trying to communicate that God is. And when you put it in the context of a people who were going through persecutions and who were desperately needing mercy and grace to help in time of need, Mark is saying, Jesus is the one. Run to him. He's the son of God. He's conquered. He's got this. You're going to go through some difficult times, but you know what? You're going to get mercy and you're going to get grace. You're going to be able to endure whatever it is that comes your way, whatever hardships come your way, whatever challenges come your way, whatever persecutions come your way, you will have what you need. Get to the throne room. Get into the throne room. Are you running on your own? Are you trying to figure it out yourself? Are you trying to be your own God without actually saying those words? I'm going to encourage you. Humble yourself. Walk into the throne room of God in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Dad, I need you. I need help. And he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You're mine. You've been sealed by the Spirit of God. You're mine. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com.